Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Brad. And my name's Sarah. We want to say thanks to everyone who has already subscribed and reviewed our podcast on iTunes. This means a lot to us, so much, in fact, that you guys actually enjoy listening to what we do. If you want to stay in contact with us, though, head to boft.org backslash podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter. This week, we are discussing the life of Andrew Johnson, a Tennessean who served in nearly every elected office possible, but who has gone down as perhaps the most controversial president our country has ever had. And Johnson was born on December 29th, 1808 in Raleigh, North Carolina. Little side note, I was also born in Raleigh, North Carolina, and now I live in Nashville. What? We'll see see as we go if there's more similarities between you and Andrew Johnson. Nope, I think it ends there. His family was impoverished. His parents both worked at a local inn. His mother, Polly, was a laundress, and his father, Jacob, was a hostler. Which, what is a hostler, Brad? It means he worked in the stables. Okay. Both Polly and Jacob were illiterate, and Andrew Johnson himself never attended school. Jacob died of an apparent heart attack when Andrew was three years old. Jacob's heart attack was caused from him, like, jumping into a river to to save people who were drowning. So, like, he overexerted himself and then had a heart attack afterwards. So it's kind of a tragic death. Remember when you were a kid and your mom told you, "Don't, don't jump into the really cold pool? This is why. Andrew's mother, Polly, then became the family's sole provider, and she worked as a washerwoman. So Andrew, alongside his older brother, William were apprenticed to a tailor whose name was James Selby. He was 10 years old at the time and was legally bound to serve the tailor shop until his 21st birthday. Through this job, Andrew learned to read. Yeah, one of the big myths about Andrew Johnson is that he was completely illiterate. He wasn't. It seems like his parents were. But he did learn how to read in his early adulthood. And some historians also say he was educated simply by listening to the men who came into the tailor shop. Andrew, though, he was pretty unhappy working in the tailor shop, and he and his brother ran away after about five years. Which was a big deal. Your apprenticeships weren't taken lightly back then. Like, you were legally contracted to stay with your uh, with the person you were apprenticed to. So James Selby, the owner of the shop, offered a reward of $10 for anyone who brought the boys back. The boys escaped to Carthage, North Carolina, where Andrew worked. As a tailor for a few months. It's just funny that he escaped from a tailor shop to be a tailor somewhere else. But he also fell in love with the girl. But she rejected his marriage proposal, so he returned back to Raleigh and attempted to buy out his contract with Shelby. But Selby. Selby, sorry. Selby wasn't having it, um, so Andrew had to run away again. He fled west, and he traveled on foot. He stayed for a time in Knoxville, Tennessee, Then he was in Mooresville, Alabama, but he ended up in Columbia, Tennessee, where for a time he worked as a tailor. You guessed it, a tailor. But he ended up settling in Greenville, Tennessee. And in Greenville, Johnson starred a successful tailoring business in front of his home. So I tell you what I wanted to call? I don't think I'm going to call this podcast this, but I had an idea of what to call this one. What is it? You know the the movie Tinker, Tailor, Soldier, Spy? Mm -hmm. I thought about calling this one Taylor, 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 Taylor. (laughs) But, I don't know if anybody would get it. <laughs> I don't think they would either. Um, Taylor, 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 present. Right. In 1827, at 18 years old, Andrew Johnson married 16-year-old Eliza McCardle, the daughter of a shoemaker. 
They were married for almost 50 years. They had five children, Martha, Charles, Mary, Robert, and Andrew Jr. And Eliza, some people have said Eliza taught Andrew how to read. It does seem like she tutored him in some studies like math and writing. But like we already discussed, he actually knew how to read from earlier in his life. Eliza isn't really going to come back up because she stayed at home through most of Andrew Johnson's political career. Andrew Johnson's tailoring business was quite successful in Greenville, which allowed him the funds to hire more help and the time to spend reading and educating himself. It was at this point that Andrew Johnson entered into his career in politics. He was pretty young. He's only 21. But in 1829, he was elected to be a town alderman. And five years later, on January 4th, 1834, he was elected mayor of Greenville, Tennessee. One year later, he ran for a seat in the Tennessee House of Representatives. According to one biographer, Andrew's superior debate skills allowed him to, quote, demolish the competition, allowing him to win with a two-to-one margin. Around this time, too, Andrew purchased his first slave, a 14-year-old girl named Dolly. And Johnson did own at least eight enslaved people during his lifetime. And this is going to be an interesting dynamic because one of the big conflicting aspects of Johnson's personality is the fact that he came from nothing. He came, he grew up out of poverty, but then he started to overcome that. And so he's going to have these conflicting aspects of his personality where he relates to the lower middle class while at the same time being elite and being a slave owner. It also kind of goes to the aspect that slavery was so in tuned in Southern society that even if you were poor and white, you looked to the potential that you could one day become wealthy enough to own enslaved people. While in Greenville, Andrew also joined the Tennessee State Militia, where he attained the rank of colonel. Andrew Johnson was a member of the Tennessee State Legislature for many years. He served in both the State House and the Senate, and served as a presidential elector for the state of Tennessee. At the beginning of his political career, Johnson did not consistently back either of the major political parties, which at the time were the Democrats, led by Andrew Jackson, a fellow Tennessean, and the Whigs, which were formed in opposition to Andrew Jackson. Eventually, though, Andrew Johnson became an active supporter of the Democratic Party. In 1853, Andrew was elected to the United States House of Representatives, a seat that he would hold for 10 years. He opposed the abolitionist movement, believing that the United States Constitution protected slavery. This was a belief that increasingly took center stage during his years in office, while the national debate over the issue of slavery grew more heated. And for his second term as representative, he was opposed by William G. Brownlow, who he defeated, but we did an episode on Brownlow last season. Everybody should listen to that to talk about more of the politics here in Tennessee. That was one of our favorites. He also supported President Polk, a fellow Tennessean, although the two didn't, did have kind of a strained relationship. In 1849, President Polk hosted his final New Year's celebration in office. And I just like this quote because he talks a little bit about Andrew Johnson. He said, among the visitors I observed in the crowd today was Honorable Andrew Johnson of the House of Representatives. Though he represents a Democratic district in Tennessee, my own state, this is the first time I have seen him during the present session of Congress. Professing to be a Democrat, he has been politically, if not personally, hostile to me during my whole term. He is very vindictive and perverse in his temper and conduct. If he had the manliness and independence to declare his opposition openly, 
He knows he could not be elected by his constituents. I am not aware that I have ever given him cause for offense. I just like that quote. Mm. I don't know why he doesn't like me. He doesn't seem to like me, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he only likes me. He only pretends like me because he knows it'll get him reelected. Either way, in 1853, Andrew Johnson chose not to run for the House of Representatives, choosing instead to run for governor of Tennessee. The election was close, but Johnson won. As governor of Tennessee, Johnson had a little real power, but it did push him more into the spotlight. He held the office for two terms, and after contemplating a run for president in 1856, he decided instead to run for the U.S. Senate. Andrew Johnson was elected to the U.S. Senate in 1857. Uh, He was widely supported among the working class and tradesmen who looked at him as one of their own. But he got much less support from the wealthy planter class. Johnson's election to the U.S. Senate put him in the front and center of the secession crisis that followed over the next couple of years. And in 1859, after John Brown's attempt to lead a slave revolt in Harper's Ferry, Virginia, Andrew Johnson gave a speech saying that the Founding Fathers' belief that all men created equal did not apply to African Americans. In the presidential election of 1860, Andrew Johnson was an early contender for the presidency. We actually went over this in our podcast about John McGavick, so check that out if you haven't already. The Democratic Party failed to nominate one candidate. They split in half, Northern Democrats nominating Stephen Douglas, and Southern Democrats, with Andrew Johnson's support, nominating Vice President John C. Breckinridge. This split would eventually lead to Abraham Lincoln's election. Abraham Lincoln was known to be opposed to the spread of slavery. Um, It led many in the southern states into a heated debate over secession. And it was at this point that Andrew Johnson took a stand. On December 18th and 19th, he took to the Senate floor and he gave a lengthy speech that changed the course of his political career for the years to come. And when I say that this speech was lengthy, I mean... I found it in a book, and as I kept turning each page, I thought, oh, he's about to conclude. But then I just kept flipping pages over and over again. No, it tends to go on and on and on. (laughs) When I read the description at the beginning, they said that they had to unfortunately uh, include only a portion of it because it's too long. So we're going to now quote his entire speech from beginning to end. Yeah, be prepared to be here for the next four to five hours. (laughs) We'll just give a couple uh, of the big points. He began his speech by directly attacking those who would say that a state had the right to secede from the Union without the consent of the other states. He said, You have entered into this compact. It was mutual. It was reciprocal. And if you of your own volition have no right to withdraw and make the contract without the consent of the other parties. If the states have the right to secede at will and pleasure for real or imaginary evils or oppression, I repeat again, this government is at an end. It is no stronger than a rope of sand. Its weight will crumble it to pieces, and it cannot exist. In his speech, Johnson made it clear that he was by no means opposed to slavery or a fan of Abraham Lincoln. But he did believe that Lincoln was fairly elected president according to the rules put forth in the Constitution. He simply felt that if southern states stuck together, they would be able to keep Lincoln's anti-slavery policies in check. Toward the end of this two-day speech, Johnson said this, I have an abiding faith. I have an unshaken confidence in man's capability to govern himself. I will not give up on this government. No, I intend to stand by it and entreat every man throughout the nation who is a patriot to come forward and rally around the altar of our common country and lay the Constitution upon it as our last libation and swear by God 
that the Constitution shall be saved and the Union preserved. So for better or for worse, in giving this speech and making a stand for the Union, Andrew Johnson chose his side. He certainly did not agree with everything Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party stood for, but he alienated himself from the men who formed the Confederacy. And the next day, South Carolina voted to secede from the Union. Johnson returned to Tennessee, and he tried his best to keep the state he called home from seceding from the Union, too. The problem was his successor, as governor, Isham Harris, was very pro-secession. Harris, along with many West Tennesseans, campaigned ferociously for secession. East Tennessee, where Andrew Johnson is from, remained very loyal to the Union. Middle Tennessee was very divided over the issue. Tennessee had to vote twice on secession, but on June 8, 1861, Tennessee officially seceded from the Union. With this vote, Andrew Johnson's home state was officially in rebellion from the Union. He was forced to flee, fearing for his own life. In fact, there are a few accounts that say he was actually shot at while he was trying to leave. Having made his stand for the Union, Andrew Johnson was the only Southern senator that remained loyal to it. He was an outcast from the state he called home, but ironically, he would now become a valuable ally to Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party. Shortly into the war, U.S. forces commanded by Ulysses S. Grant took over Nashville. And from that point on, from February of 1862 on, Middle Tennessee was under federal occupation. As U.S. forces took over sections of the South, Abraham Lincoln chose to appoint Union-controlled military governors to oversee those areas, rather than simply allowing local governments to take back over. And in March of 1862, Lincoln appointed Andrew Johnson military governor of Tennessee. In response, Confederate forces seized Johnson's home in East Tennessee and eventually turned it into a hospital. They also took the enslaved people Johnson still owned. Eventually, Confederate forces did allow Johnson's family to join him in Nashville. Much of Johnson's time as military governor was spent eliminating Confederate influence from the state. He shut down Confederate-leading newspapers, and he demanded loyalty oaths from public officials. When Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863, which ended slavery in states where the citizens remained, quote, in rebellion against the United States, Johnson was able to convince Lincoln to exclude Tennessee. Now, part of this promise was that Tennessee was, at that point, uh, attempting to ratify a new constitution which would abolish slavery, but Tennessee was actually exempt from the Emancipation Proclamation. And following the proclamation, Andrew Johnson's mind began to change on the institution of slavery, at least regarding if it should remain legal or not. At one point during the war, he wrote, If the institution of slavery seeks to overthrow it, the government, then the government has a clear right to destroy it. He even reluctantly came to support the enlistment of former enslaved individuals into the Federal Army as USCTs, or United States Colored Troops. Now, there's one caveat to that. He did make it clear that he believed African Americans should be left to perform menial tasks while white soldiers did the actual fighting. But nevertheless, he did recruit roughly 20,000 USCT soldiers during his time as military governor of Tennessee. And when Abraham Lincoln began his campaign for his second term as president in 1864, he sought out a new candidate to run with him as VP. And that was Andrew Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> well, in his first term, Lincoln's VP was Maine Senator Hannibal Hamlin. And Hamlin had served well, 
but Lincoln and his staff felt he stood a better chance if he picked a Southern Democrat to run with. So in June of 1865, Lincoln was nominated as his party's candidate, and Andrew Johnson was picked as his VP. After the party confirmation, Lincoln said, Andy Johnson, I think, is a good man. I think the I think <laughs> is, is a little bit concerning. It's not Andy Johnson, I know, is a good man. It's, I think, Or is even Andy Johnson is a good man. Yeah, right. Johnson actually campaigned for the election, which was not normal for the time. Uh, he gave speeches in Tennessee, Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. And one of his final acts as military governor of Tennessee was to certify the state's new constitution, which abolished slavery. And in October of 1864, Johnson addressed a large rally of mostly African Americans in Nashville. In this speech, Johnson discussed how the South would be a better place if large plantations were broken up and the land was sold to honest farmers. And at one point, he, um, Andrew Johnson, told the crowd that he wished a Moses would arise and, quote, lead them safely to their promised land of freedom and happiness. And that members of the crowd then shouted, quote, you are our Moses. We want no Moses but you. And Johnson's response is, well, we'll get him into a lot of hot water. And it's one of the most, I don't know, controversial quotes of his mm -hmm. career. He said, well, then, humble and unworthy as I am, if no other better shall be found, I will indeed be your Moses and lead you through the Red Sea of war and bondage to a fairer future of liberty and peace. If only he would have held himself to those words. But Andrew Johnson was sworn in as vice president on March 4th, 1865. This would be a day that would set the tone for Johnson's tenure in the White House. Some historians have argued that Johnson was ill in the days leading up to the inauguration and attempted to fortify himself with whiskey. The common consensus is this. The night before his inauguration... Johnson attended a party in his honor and ended up drinking heavily. When he woke up the next morning, he was incredibly hungover. Just before his inauguration ceremony at the Capitol, Johnson asked current Vice President Hannibal Hamlin for some whiskey. Johnson then took a tumbler full straight, followed by two more, stating, I need all the strength for the occasion I have. As he made his way to the front of the crowded and hot Senate chamber to give his address, still drunk from the night before and feeling the drinks he had just finished, he had no way of knowing that just over a month later he'd be sworn in as president, following the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. So that's the end of part one of our two-part series on Andrew Johnson. Make sure you are subscribed on your favorite podcast app. That way you don't miss part two in two weeks. If you'd like to reach out, send us an email at podcast at boft.org or follow us on Instagram at 10in20podcast. And be sure to stop by for a tour at Carter House in Carnton. You might even get one of the two of us as your tour guide. You just never know. Thank you so much for listening. See you in two weeks.